Hey there, folks. You know what Rage Against the Machine means? That means it's time for another truth in a thousand words or less. Happy Thursday to y'all. Uh, at least, uh, at least I assume it's Thursday. Uh, my name is Stephen Craig. I'm the host and author of Truth in a Thousand Words or Less. And we come to you on uh, all sorts of podcast media each and every Thursday. So happy you could join us this week. Uh, it's going to be a fun week. It's going to be a fun week. Um, in case, this week we're going to be talking about a subject that uh, it's going to actually maybe even make me sound like a Republican. Um, crazy as that might sound. Uh, but in any case, uh, we're going to be talking about the assumption of the risk doctrine. I'm uh, glad that you could join us for that. Um, in any case, and before I dive right into it, um, the it, it's a interesting and fun discussion. Um, I dive into what assumption of the risk is uh, in the column itself, but uh, for those of you who don't know, um, I, I actually went to law school quite <laughs> a number of years ago. Uh, and, uh, I had uh, just a little personal background on that one. For those of you who don't know me on a personal level, uh, and just tune in on this, um, I went to, you know, I taught for a couple of years, uh, at boarding school, <clears throat> um, thought that I might actually want to make some real money. Uh, if you're a teacher and you listen to this, I highly recommend, uh, you, uh, going back and reading my column, uh, where will all the teachers go, um. In any case, uh, just minus that little <laughs> diatribe, um, in any case, I uh, what decided it would be a nice idea to make some money, went to law school, and uh, was like, this just isn't for me. I did really well, Was uh, went to George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C., uh, and loved actual law school itself. Um, I loved the notion about uh, what makes for the law, and... Um, inevitably decided I didn't want to practice law that I, I was born to be a teacher, which uh, those of you who have had me in the classroom, I think would probably, most of you would agree, unless you got like a D or something in my class, in which case you might beg to differ. But um, in any case, uh, <laughs> the um, I did really enjoy law school and the class I probably enjoyed most was torts. Um, and if you don't know what torts are, torts are uh, basically suing people. <laughs> it's the vast majority of our uh, of our liability system uh, of our court system uh, is taken up by torts. Um, somebody has been wronged. Um, they are all civil uh, cases. This is not the criminal law. Um, and the reason I think I enjoyed that class the most is. Um, and this is where I will come out on like a Republican, is I, I find the vast majority of litigation in this country to be frivolous and, uh, and overdone. And that's not to suggest, uh, as, I, as I come out and say in the case, that there aren't legitimate lawsuits and that the, the tort system, uh, the civil, uh, civil court system, isn't used quite well in certain cases. Take, for example, if you ever saw the movie Aaron Brockovich, where um, people have used uh, tort litigation in order to reform um, bad actors uh, out in the system. Um, but the, there are also a lot of things um, in the civil court system which I think are complete and utter BS. And uh, this goes 
uh, a long way to what was called the assumption of the risk doctrine. Now, a lot of you will know that when you go to do some inherently risky activity, say, for example, you uh, go rafting with a company and you sign a waiver <clears throat> where you say, I, what that is, is you're basically assuming the risk. You know that it's a risky activity and you, um, and you sign off saying, hey, I know that this is risky. I'm understanding that risk and I will, um, I will go ahead and assume that risk and I will not sue if something bad happens during the course of that. Like, for example, if the raft flips over and I hit my head on a rock and die, um, it's not because the rafting company did something wrong. They were taking me rafting, which inherently is risky. Um, and uh, I'll give you another example, skiing, a sport that I love dearly. Um, by and large, the ski industry exists because of the assumption of the risk doctrine. You, when you go, either you get a ski pass, a season pass, or a day pass, uh, you sign a waiver. Um, whether you actually read it or not is another whole matter, but uh, you sign a waiver saying, hey, listen, skiing's an inherently risky activity. You'll see these signs up even before you get up on the lift. It says, hey, um, we understand that this is a risky activity, and I take... Um, I take and understand those risks. Now, this isn't um, where the ski area fails. You know, the ski area, you know, doesn't like rope off and there's a big giant 800 foot cliff and you go flying off the cliff because it's unmarked and you had no idea it was there. Well, that's a little bit different. But by and large, the ski industry has remained insulated from that because of this aspect of the law called the assumption of the risk doctrine. And um, years ago, however, uh, and it started in California. And I, as a general whole, I, as I said, as a, as a liberal, I usually agree with a lot of the things that California does. But the erosion of the, Cal the assumption of the risk doctrine, um, to me, has been really uh, harmful to things in the United States. And when I was taking this towards class, um, my professor, um, who, and I just clearly saw eye to eye. And this is, by the way, in a room full of 100 people. Uh, you're talking about a hundred students taking this class, um, and uh, it was the one class where I actually had an essay. Like most of, um, almost all of law school is hypotheticals. You're given a case, uh, a, set, a certain set of circumstances, and then you have to argue uh, on both sides and tell what um, what legal arguments you would make if you were the lawyer for the one side, and then what you legal arguments you would make for the other side. That's almost all every single law school test. Um, but this was the one test where, um, where we were asked, uh, what is the assumption of the risk doctrine and how is the erosion of that doctrine impacted, um, the United States? And, uh, clearly I, I knocked it out of the park cause I had the, <laughs> one of the highest, uh, scores, um, in that class. Uh, and my answer was something along the lines of this. This is an article called High Dives and Lawn Darts. When I was a kid growing up in Canton, Connecticut, and for those of you who, uh, who grew up near me back in, uh, back in Connecticut, you might remember uh, the Mill Pond Town Pool installed a high dive during the summer of 1978. For one glorious summer, we would climb the heights if you know, of the 10-foot ladder. And if you've never seen these before, they, they still exist in some places. But as you'll hear in a second why they don't exist in a lot of places anymore, um, they are big like, you know, you go up to the top and you, you're able to dive 10 feet off from the pool. In any case, 
We would climb the heights of the 10-foot ladder and plummet recklessly into the depths of the awaiting waters below us. Few of us attempted dives, having seen plenty of the agonizing bright red markings on the backs of our friends who had dared to do so and over-rotated. Oh. Yeah, that hurts. <sighs> you know? Um, only to land squarely on their backsides. But there was nothing better than the feeling of flying 10 feet through the air and watching the amount of water it allowed our scrawny 75-pound bodies to displace with a cannonball done from that height. It was truly the magical stuff that the summers of youth are made of. And then Charles Riley had to go and ruin it for everybody. Charles, dumbass that he was, went to climb those stairs, made it halfway up, and just let go. I've never known why someone would let go of the handrails of a high dive ladder, but suffice it to say, Charles made the definitive case for why you shouldn't. Ow! Yeah. Falling straight backwards, he cracked open his head, spilling blood and a whole lot of brain matter he was clearly already in desperate need of. His parents, of course, sued, suggesting that the town was somehow negligent for not adequately foreseeing the blatant stupidity of their son. Worse yet, they won, sending the town's liability insurance soaring through the roof. The high dive was gone by the end of the summer. Ah, yes, the wistful days of the 1970s. The last fleeting moments before the erosion of the assumption of the risk doctrine came in and ruined everything. Just what is the assumption of the risk doctrine, you ask? Well, assumption of risk is a defense which bars or reduces a plaintiff's right to recovery if the defendant can demonstrate that the plaintiff voluntarily and knowingly assumed the risks at issue inherent to the dangerous activity in which the plaintiff was participating at the time of his or her injury. In other words, without all the legal speak, the assumption of the risk doctrine basically says that if you see the inherent dangers of a particular activity and decide to do it anyway, you can't sue when you then get hurt. It's what keeps ski areas free from liability when snowboarders hurt themselves off the sides of half pipes. And it is what has allowed us to all continue to do lots of potentially dangerous activities that also happen to be a hell of a lot of fun. And as a side note, I was mentioning earlier about my uh, professor in my torts class. Uh, his example also was that he just, he drove this little tiny car. It wasn't even one of those electric cars. It was actually like like a like a Trabant, like one of those little East German cars, <laughs> like barely fit two fucking people. Like it's like a clown car. Uh, and he was like, "Listen, I know if I get in an accident in this thing, like I'm gonna be dead." He's like, "But I'd rather pay less for a car, pay less on the gas mileage, and I'm taking that risk." And I know that risk, I understand that risk, and it is my decision as an adult to make that trade-off. And, uh, you know, and that's a big part of it. In any case, uh, that is until the state of California came along and decided to ruin everyone's fun. There must be a whole lot of stupid people in California. Okay, not as many as Florida and Texas and, gosh, a lot of red states, but okay, because in a series of judicial decisions in the 1970s, California courts, long known for being preposterously plaintiff-friendly, chipped away at the assumption of the risk doctrine. Right, you probably all know 
uh, you probably all know the McDonald's case and think I'm talking about the McDonald's coffee case where she sued herself. That actually, that case you should do, if you um, think I'm talking about that, you should actually take a look at uh, the facts around that case. Um, I, that case actually um, is a little bit more debatable than you might think. The McDonald's was more um, egregiously uh, at fault there than um, the media portrayed it. They made it sound like this was just some dumb grandma suing for tons of money. And the reality was that they really did serve overly, unbelievably scalding hot coffee and did not protect her in any way, shape or form. Um, and uh, yeah, the case, the facts of the case actually are not quite what you think. But in any case, uh, getting away from that, <laughs> that non sequitur. Um, no longer was it sufficient that the inherent dangers of the activity were patently obvious. Suddenly, it became necessary that each and every specific potential danger be explicated for the participant, lest they suggest that they didn't know that could happen to them. As such, many experience providers moved to these liability waivers we all love filling out so much. But even those became pretty much worthless because California courts then ruled that unless the specific cause of the injury was detailed in the waiver, the provider was still liable for damages. That's right. Those waivers that you fill out, they're almost utterly useless. They really don't protect the company hardly at all. In many cases, the liability waivers just got longer and longer, like some sort of some sort of Faustian bargain where we relinquish our rights to just about everything. In many cases, the activities went away altogether. And and if you you think about like if you sit there and you read through those waivers and you go, Oh my god, how do they come up with all of this gibberish and how why is this so long and why are they, you know, listing every inane thing? It's because they kind of have to. They have to think through every potentially stupid fucking thing that people might actually do to themselves while doing the activity. Like take your kids to Jump Street and they delineate every possible thing that could happen to you while you were while you were uh, while you were doing the activity. Um, and that's why the waivers are so unbelievably long. Now Take, for example, jarts. Now an ancient relic of the 1970s that my spell check doesn't even recognize. Jarts were a game of lawn darts where one tossed the dart in the air and tried to land it in the hoop provided. Needless to say, some people take my throwing deficient daughter as an example, are not going to be as highly accurate as others. Jarts, as any reasonable person could foresee, are bound to go awry. And given that they are made to penetrate the ground and stick where they land, one should be able to logically surmise that they might have the same impact on one's foot and move judiciously away when someone else is tossing. But of course, some idiot did not apparently foresee that highly likely inevitability and took one to the foot. They sued. And thus the reason my spell check and many of you have no idea what the hell I am even talking about. Okay, I get it. Jarts are hardly some great cultural casualty. But think of all the crazy shit we used to do back in the 70s that would never fly today. Riding in the bed of a pickup truck. Jungle gyms. Nude dumpster diving. Even worse, how many activities have become prohibitively expensive because of the escalating costs of liability insurance. 
Let's just say that the world is a whole lot less enjoyable without the ability to make bad choices. Don't get me wrong. There is definitely a place for holding companies and individuals accountable for acts of gross negligence. For example, in the recent case of a six-year-old girl who plummeted to her death on the haunted mine drop ride at Glenwood Caverns, a place where I took my kids and we actually rode that ride last summer before all this happened. After operators overrode the safety mechanism intended to alert them to the fact that she was not properly buckled into the ride, there was no way that her parents should have foreseen the possibility of her fatal injuries on an amusement park ride and it is necessary for the court system to act accordingly, not so much to assuage the sadness of the grieving parents, but to assure that the amusement park take legitimate steps to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. But more often than not, we are being deprived of our ability to make our own decisions about the chances we are or are not willing to take on the name of providing restitution to a bunch of dumbasses that should have generally known better and lining the pockets of the ambulance chasers that enable them. Life is inherently dangerous, and there is no way to hermetically seal ourselves off from the world. And even if we could, how much fun would that be anyways? By once again permitting stupidity to triumph over basic common sense, we are depriving ourselves of much of what makes life worth living in the first place. You know, like high dives and jarts. And while that's the end of the column, I did want to, um, you know, I get to a thousand words right there, so I <laughs> I cut it off. But I wanted to tell the story of a um, student whose name I'll leave out because uh, it is uh, one of my real students from just a few years ago um, when I was teaching at a school in Vail. And um, a great family and a great kid. Um and uh, in any case, this kid uh, was skiing on a run called Prima Cornice. And um, he and his buddy went to go ski Prima Cornice. And it was roped off. And uh, these were Vail locals. They know it well. They know the deal. And um, they didn't... Uh, what they did was they skied down to where the rope stopped. Um, and they went... went past, right? So they, they went where the rope stopped. Um where the, there was, it wasn't even logical to think that anyone would enter the run there anymore. It was well past the run. They go cut in after the rope, and then they hiked back up inside the rope to the area that was had been clearly marked off and was roped off. The first, the student that I had um, started down the run and started an avalanche. The whole reason that the area had been roped off was that it was the ski patrol had known that it was avalanche prone at that moment. Uh, and they, they had in fact uh, roped it off for just that reason, left it closed. Um, and the kids started an avalanche and, uh, and died in that avalanche. And it's unbelievably tragic. Um, but at some point or another, we have to be responsible for our own decisions and trying to hold the ski resort in that particular case responsible. Um, that's, that's where now the ski resort has to go over the top, right? To defend itself against potential litigation like that. Um, the ski resort has to somehow or another overcompensate for that. And this is where, as I said, I, I think it's really imperative to realize um, that we are, uh, the, the erosion of the assumption of risk doctrine 
um, allowing plaintiffs to get away with uh, suing for almost anything uh, is uh, is in inevitably um, costs all of us. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, I have to watch God knows, and all of you do too, have to watch God knows how many um, lawyer commercials every morning. It, it, like how many lawyers are supported off of accident litigation is m unbelievably mind-numbing. But we have this um, misunderstanding that somehow or another, every single time that these people sue, that the money comes like from nowhere, that it just comes from the corporation. Like say, for example, you sue the ski area. Well, you know, Vail Resorts has got plenty of money, so they're just, you know, let's sue them and everything else. And I, listen, I agree with you that Vail Resorts has plenty of money. It's obscene. But uh, Vail Resorts, the CEO isn't going to take a lesser paycheck because of that lawsuit. What they're going to do is pass the cost of that litigation, whether it ends up settling or not, or whether they end up losing or not, whatever they have to, whatever it costs them, right? Whether it's just in the costs um, for their, their, um, their own lawyers, right? To defend against that lawsuit or whether it is, uh, whether they end up actually losing the lawsuit and they're awarded some outrageous, um, ostentatious uh, jury award. Um, juries oftentimes believe that again, like that that money comes out of nowhere. It doesn't. The people who then pay for that is us. And when the defendant is say, for example, the US government, it's our taxpayer money. You pay for it. You pay. Like when McDonald's gets sued and has to pay out all this money to somebody who spills coffee on themselves. And, and as I said, that was probably a rightful case. But when, when they sue and get money, McDonald's doesn't sit there and go, oh, well, you know, in that case, I guess, I guess all of the, I guess all of us board members will take less money. No, no, they raise the cost of a cup of coffee. You pay for it. You as the consumer, any of the consumers of that business end up having to pay. And so it's not just free money that comes out of nowhere. So in any case, um, and by the way, 95% of tort cases settle, 95%, because the companies don't want to have to absorb that unreasonable cost in case they do lose, and so they do settle. And so it, all it does is propagate more and more frivolous lawsuits because people go, well, this is complete and utter bullshit, but if I sue, I'll probably get a settlement, and that's better than, better than nothing. And lawyers take it. Lawyers work out of one-third contingency. They get nothing. Right in, in all of these um, in all of these tort cases, almost always lawyers work off of a contingency basis. They get nothing, right? They get nothing if the case if it goes to court and they lose, but they get a third, a third, and that's a pretty when jury rewards and like um, and some of the settlements are as high as they are. That's a pretty big fee. Think about the people who sued the tobacco industry, right? And made billions, billions of dollars. And the lawyers got to take a third. So in any case, that's, uh, that's this week's column on uh, the assumption of the risk doctrine. Um, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not switching parties or party affiliation. I just believe, um, first of all, I, I, I kind of like the fact of having uh, a Listen, I think all of us should take each issue um, in and of itself. Uh, we're far too tribal as it is. Um, 
And uh, and so, yeah, I, I do not subscribe to every aspect of liberalism. Uh, and this this is one place where, where I don't. Uh, I, said, I told you I was going to come off sounding like a Republican. Uh, but one guy who's not going to come off sounding like a Republican, yeah, because he plays with the dead, is John Mayer. Take us on out, Johnny. My name is Stephen Craig. I am the host and author of uh, Truth in a Thousand Words or Less. Be glad I do this instead of acting as an, as an attorney. I sure am. I'll be back here next week, next Thursday, and each and every Thursday. Until then, thank you folks for listening. Uh, we couldn't do it without you. We're available everywhere that you can get podcasts. And uh, you can always check us out at uh, www.waitingfortoday.com. You can uh, also check us out on Medium, Facebook, Instagram. You get the deal. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you next Thursday. Peace out, y'all.